You know, the Psalms, they are all wonderful, but there's one that stands out in particularly, Psalm 136. It's unique. It repeats the same phrase over and over, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Right? Whenever God speaks, right, we should humble ourselves, we should be quiet, we should listen, we should pay attention carefully, but especially in those places where God repeats Himself, but how much more so should we pay attention when God repeats himself, not once, not twice, but 26 times. God wants to make sure that we know that his loving kindness is everlasting. Knowing God's loving kindness is everlasting, it's going to affect your view of the world, your sense of personal identity, but it's also going to remind you that you will not experience this kind of love Anywhere else in your life. Every other kind of love, it is flawed in some way. But not God's. His love is perfect. His love is perfectly steadfast forever. And God has placed His love on us. And He will never remove it. So no matter how, how hard life may seem right now, or how weak you may feel, you have a reason to continue on. His loving kindness endures forever. Amen? Well, again, welcome. A couple of announcements just to bring to your attention. I want to remind you one last time that Grace River City Church, which is the church that meets after ours, is hosting a conference right here in our building. And they're doing so a week from yesterday. And it is entitled Christian Piety in the Metaverse. So how does godliness fit in in our current day and age. And so I encourage you to come that day. You can, you can walk right in and there'll be room for you. Uh, if you would like to come, it's one day and uh, it begins at 9 a.m. So set that day aside and be encouraged. Um, there's also a bake sale coming up for Epic. And I want to bring special attention. Mark your calendars, please, for March 29th. Discipleship Training Seminar. If you are discipling someone or preparing to do so. We take that very seriously in our church and we want to make sure that you are equipped to do so, that you have your questions answered. And so that is a fifth Wednesday of the month. And so you, we know you've got that time marked out already for Home Fellowship Group. But you'll be coming here instead and be encouraged as you um, take up that important role of discipling others, showing other, other people how to walk with Christ. And then if you have not yet been baptized, April 2nd will be our next baptism. Please fill out the forms that are, I think they're in the, in the lobby. Uh, please fill that up, put it in the offering box so that we can get in touch with you. With that, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. While you're doing so, let's... Well, let's first read our lengthy text. Here's our text for this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you are a God of love and from you we learn how to love. In fact, it was because you loved us first that we are able to love. So feed our, our souls, our hearts with a knowledge of love so that we can obey you and do all things in love. And we ask for your help in this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So there was a popular song in the mid-1960s. Some of you will recognize it by the title. What the world needs now is love. Right? It was originally performed by Jackie DeShannon, and then later, the one I'm more familiar with was by Dionne Warwick. And here's how the lyrics go. No singing them, just listen. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just for some, but for everyone. Pretty good, right? The song is right. The world and everyone in it needs love. And it is in short supply. But a question for you, is, is love exclusive to Christianity? Is love exclusive to Christianity? No, of course not. Love exists in the world through people. People whom God, um, who is love, right? God who is love, He created us in His image. So we see love all, ta- all the time in, in various charitable and, and other self-sacrificial actions. And so, yes, love exists in the world. But, but sin has contaminated mankind's soul resulting in a love that is tainted and twisted and limited to varying degrees, usually by selfishness. So what is needed for there to be more of this much-needed love in the world and and not just more songs about how much we need it? Well, we need Christ's love to be produced in our hearts, which comes only through the transforming work of the Spirit. Listen Listen to the Apostle Peter as he said this in chapter 1, verse 22. He said, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. And he tells us why. Because you've been born again. Not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. So there is a significant difference between the nature of the love in the hearts of those apart from Christ and the love that the Spirit produces in those who are saved by Christ. First, there is a significantly different source of this love. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John 4.19, he says, we love because he first loved us. And how did Christ first love us? Again, the Apostle John, chapter 3, verse 16. We know this, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And the sacrificial love of Christ for us, it is the source of a sacrificial love in us for others. John continues, he says, and we, because he laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's some pretty significant love. I mean, let, let those words sit in. Sink in. You have reason to lay down your life for another brother or sister in Christ. And as a result of God's choosing of us, right, we are justified, we're accepted, we are loved by God. And so we can live. We can live with a confidence that God's love for us, it is behind everything that happens to us. It frees us now so that we can know joy. 
And it strengthens us to, to reject the two great barriers to this kind of love. Fear and greed. And it is because of who we are in Christ that Paul can tell us to have compassion. He told the Colossians in 3.12, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. The genesis of this love. It is the death of Christ for us. Because it was there that He purchased us for Himself and purchased the very hope that fuels love for others. What is that? He tells us in Colossians 1. He says, We give thanks to God since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. See how crucial your hope in Christ is to being able to show the love of Christ to others? And so already we can see how how the depth of love that we demonstrate towards others, it is a product of two Gospel-related truths. Our understanding of the cross and the degree of our future hope. The degree of our trust in that future hope. So love, this Christ-like love that is to be a part of everything that we do, that love is born of the Gospel. And because the love the Spirit produces in us is rooted in the Gospel, we shouldn't be surprised that it has a different goal than the love that we do see in the world amongst those who don't know Christ, who even profess to know Christ but really don't know Him. See, it's not entirely different, right? There is some overlap in this. Both Christian love and secular love, it does essentially aim at the well-being of others. For Christians, though, the, the good is defined to include their relationship with Christ. That's why we love others, because we have a hope that through it we'll be able to talk to them about the love of Christ. For Christians, the, this good that includes the relationship of Christ, see, we say, what is, what is truly good for people? What can my love shown to another person? What good can that produce? Well, our hope as a Christian is that we get a chance to tell people of the good that they can find in trusting Jesus Christ. Walking with Jesus Christ. Living for Jesus Christ. And this means that that when Christians do good to others, it is with the hope that they will see the good done in love that it comes ultimately from God's love in us. It's not from us, it's from God. And this is the ultimate good that we desire to see happen when we show love to others. And when that doesn't happen, right? it's still a love that is born of God. But we grieve that it fell short of the ultimate goal of love, which is to bring glory to God who loves and saves sinners. So that's a good lead into our text here in 1 Corinthians. See, Paul is he's concluding his letter. He's concluding it with a call to these imperfect and often immature unloving Christians. 
to remain faithful to Christ. And he does this through five admonitions. And I've separated those five admonitions into two groups. The first group consists of the first four commands that we find in verse 13. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. These are all related in that they they call Christians to watchfulness, to steadfastness, as to the faith itself. And in light of all that Paul has preached to them, Paul is urging them to remain faithful to Christ by adhering to the gospel. And to do that, to adhere to the gospel, they have to be on their guard. Stand firm in the faith. Pursue spiritual maturity and be strong in the Lord. And over four sermons, we looked at each of those commands. And if you've missed any of them, then I would urge you to visit our website and there you can, you can hear any one of those sermons. But there's one last command here. Now, whereas the first four were about remaining faithful to Christ by adhering to the gospel, this last command has to do with their relationships to one another. So he says there, as we read earlier, verse 14, let all things be done in love. And when we hear these words, right, having studied this whole book now together, we, we should hear Paul's emphasis on love that, that, that has run throughout this entire letter, but, letter but, but clearly the apex was in chapter 13, where from 13 verses in chapter 13 that make up that chapter, you heard 10 sermons on love. So love is at the heart of all of the instructions that Paul gives them on how to conduct themselves. In fact, it's at the heart, really, love is at the heart of Christianity itself. Love is at the heart of Paul's desire for the Thessalonians when he tells them in 1 Thessalonians 3.12, he says, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as also we do for you. Love is at the heart of how faith is to be lived out in our lives. In Galatians, Paul says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith. Working through love. Love is at the heart of what the Spirit produces in us. Galatians 5.22 But the fruit of the Spirit is... What's the first one? You can say it. Love. Love is at the heart of how we treat fellow believers. Again, Galatians 5. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, your flesh... But through love, serve one another. See the contrast there? Love is at the heart of how we are to treat our neighbor. To the Romans, he said in chapter 13, verse 8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And then love is at the heart of how we are to use our freedoms. We've kind of touched on that already. But in Romans 14, Paul says, For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. So we're speaking about this uniquely Christian form of love. And the Greek word behind it is the one you're all familiar with, agape. 
This word found its primary definition in how God acted on behalf of his enemies. But God demonstrates his own lower, his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This love was made manifest in the life and the death of Christ himself. And so to have such love in you, it, it means to be towards others the way God in Christ has been towards you. That is the love we're talking about. The essence of all of Paul's moral instructions to those who walk in the Spirit, it's represented by what he told the Ephesians. In chapter 5, verse 2, he says, Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us. There's the definition. This is a high calling. So we approach this, we should approach this humbly. We should understand how much we need the Lord to help us to do this. It should be no surprise that, that Paul concludes this letter by telling them that, that love should in fact be the driving force behind everything that they do. Let all that you do be done in love. It's love that's going to pour the balm into the wounds of the schisms that Paul talked about in chapters 1 through 3. It's love that's going to help their attitudes towards Him that we see in chapter 4. Their treatment of those who were in sin in chapter 5. Their lawsuits against each other in chapter 6. The state of their marriages that she talks about in chapter 7. The selfish abuse of the weak by those with knowledge in chapters 8 through 10. And the demeaning treatment of the have-nots that we saw at the Lord's Supper in chapter 11. Paul names one principle that, that he says it should regulate the use of their freedoms and it should oversee the exercise of their spiritual gifts. Love. Chapters 12 through 14. So doing all things in love is how you are to live out your life as a Christian. Because as you do so, you are being faithful to Christ, whom Paul call, calls in Colossians 1.13, he calls Christ the Son of God's love. So my point to you this morning is simply remain faithful to Christ by doing everything you do in love. Remain faithful to Christ by doing everything you do in love. The the truth is that you will likely forget just about everything that I say here this morning. It's inevitable. You probably can't even remember what was said last week's sermon. The same will be true next week. But if you let this one principle guide you all the days of your life, right? let everything you do be done in love, That's how you remain faithful to Christ. If you will do that, then on that day, when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, I can guarantee you what you will hear. Well done. Well done, good and faithful slave. Let everything you do be done in love. Now, given how much Paul said earlier in the letter on love, nothing I say to you today, this morning, is going to be particularly new. Just as Paul's command 
It wasn't new to the Corinthians when they read it for themselves for the first time. It is therefore a final admonition. A final reminder. His parting words of what we must be working to do every day of our lives. And that is not an overstatement. That is not an overstatement to say that. Regarding love, I want to speak to you about two things. Love's motivation and love's result. So let's begin by looking at love's motivation. What should motivate us to love others in the way that Christ has loved us? See, love does not insist on its own way. And we learned that back in chapter 13, right? As beautiful a concept as that is, we tend to find in the moment where we are called upon to exercise this kind of love that it doesn't always feel lovely. Feels you know more more like frustrating. That's that's what self denial feels like to a sinner. Frustrating. Now wanting our way, that is woven into the very fabric of our fallen nature. And this has been the default orientation of all those who are born of Adam, right? That's that's all mankind. And this has been evident from even our earliest days, right? Just don't let your baby, just don't let any baby have what he or she wants. And you will see the fallen nature rise up and rear its cute little screaming head. That we are naturally and often disturbingly selfish. We do our best to disguise it, right? We try to convince ourselves that our preferences, they are reasonable. They are right. They are even righteous. We'll even defend our preferences as good as any lawyer might. So just saying that we should not insist on our own way, tell you what, that that doesn't really motivate us, does it? Because we are inherently proud and selfish. And that's why when opportunities arise to sacrificially love others, you're saying, I'm going I'm to sacrificially love others. I mean, I'm motivated right now. I'm going to do that, right? But then when the next moment arises, guess what? I'll tell you what you're going to feel. In that moment, you're going to feel tempted towards irritation, anger, self-pity. See, because it feels completely unnatural not to insist on our own way. Am I right or am I just talking about myself here? Thank you. I don't want to feel alone up here. So we must not expect the motivation to love others sacrificially to come naturally to us. Our simple hearts will always resist us when loving others requires self-denial. The motivation to prefer and to love others, therefore, it must be something that motivates us more than our natural fleshly desire to prefer and love ourselves. And this love, therefore, it is a longing that is foreign to us. It is a love that must be given to us. 
It also must be accompanied by the necessary power that we need to overcome our heart's inherent resistance to deny ourselves in any way. It is a love that is birthed in our hearts as a result of the Spirit's regenerating work in salvation. It is a love born of the grace of God. And Paul speaks of it in Titus chapter 2. Turn there. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. It is a love born of the greatest act of preferring love, sacrificial love, self-denying love. Look at verse 14. He says that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. See, the same love that motivated Christ to deny himself is what the Spirit implants in our hearts so that we will function as a people owned by God, zealous for good deeds. Jesus tells us what motivated him to willingly offer himself for us. Turn to John chapter 12, the Gospel of John chapter 12. He says in verse 27, John 12, verse 27, this is, this is what motivated him, Jesus, to willingly offer himself for us. He says, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Look at John 17. Verse 1. Lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. You see what the root motivation of his love and his sacrifice was? That the Father might be glorified. And you know what? We exist for the same purpose. Isaiah tells us, 43 verses 6 and 7, Bring my sons from afar. Bring, bring my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name. So you're in, you're in scope here, right? Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory. Not your glory. You were created for God's glory. All mankind exists for God's glory. But it is His people whom He has brought out of darkness, the darkness of sinful rebellion, and who are now called by His name, who have the special joy and privilege of choosing to do that which magnifies and attributes beauty to His name in all spheres of our life, in everything that we do. Even down to such mundane things as eating and drinking. 
And it's Paul then, here in 1 Corinthians, who brings this very motivation before us. To those who were using their freedoms right, to do uncaring, unloving, self-preferring things, even at the expense sometimes of the spiritual well-being of their brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul pointed them, he points us as well, to what is to be our motivation in all that we would choose to do. He points us to God's glory. Okay, jump back to 1 Corinthians now. But go to chapter 10 first. You astute Bible folks know where I'm going, don't you? Chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians? There's only one verse that we quote out of chapter 10. And that's where we're going. Verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do. Hey, here's that word again. Do all to the glory of God. Okay, we're all like, yeah, I know that verse. That's a good verse. But let's combine that now with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 14. Go ahead and put your eyes on it again. Verse 14, chapter 16, our text this morning. First he said, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And now he concludes the letter saying, by let all that you do be done in love. In one instance, Paul says, do all to the glory of God. And in another, do all that you do in love. When you do all that you do in love, you are doing all to the glory of God. That's your motivation. God is glorified when you do everything in love. There is no higher motivation. God is glorified when you do all that you do in love. Now, what are some of the ways that God is glorified by our doing all things in love? Let me throw a few our way. This isn't exhaustive. These are four that I, that I wanted to bring forth. Perhaps the foremost way that your love for others glorifies God is because it resembles Christ. Your love for others resembles Christ. For this, we must go to Philippians chapter 2. Okay, jump there. Philippians chapter 2. He says in verse 3, follow along with me, First Corinthians, I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing. What a contrast, right? All that you do be done in love, and now he says do nothing from selfishness. It's the exact opposite. Let everything you be do, done in love do nothing out of selfishness. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So Christ glorified God by doing nothing out of a motivation of selfishness or pride or the de desire to be seen as better than right? you, me. Right? Here's you, here's me. Right? Nothing of that was ever done by Christ. Even though he was God, he was humble in heart. Let that one sink in. Even though he was God Almighty, he was humble in heart. And in humility, he, this is what we talk about, this is what Philippians 2 is all about, right? He relinquished freely 
his rights as God. And he became a man. He did not relinquish being God. He relinquished his rights to display himself as God. And he became a man. In humility, he valued others above himself. He said, here's you, here's me. He willingly sacrificed himself to save us. And his humility meant that there was nothing that he wouldn't do to save us. Even dying the shameful death of a criminal in our place. And as a result, verse 9 of chapter 2 says, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And so when we confess as Lord our, our gloriously humble Savior... It is, as he says in verse 11, it is to the glory of God the Father. So Christ humbled Himself. He preferred others so that He could bring glory to the Father. And we are to have this same attitude that Christ had in us and for the same reason, to bring glory to God the Father. Now what will this Christ-like love look like for us? Well, Paul says in Romans 12, verse 10, he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. He says in Ephesians 4, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Listen to that, you easily irritated people like me. Ephesians 4, verse 32, be kind to one another. You know what's not kind? Is when you say something mockingly or insultingly and then follow it up with, just kidding. That's not kind. That's not loving. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. These are all ways of loving and preferring others above yourself that will glorify God because they emerge out of the same desire Christ had to glorify God through His humility. And so this Christ-like love, here's what it's going to look like. Fidelity to some people. Fidelity, trust, loyalty, right? Preference, honor, gentleness, patience, tolerance, kindness, sympathy, forgiveness. And things like this. Okay, that's what it's going to look like, but what's it going to feel like? It's going to feel like self-denial. So don't expect this to come naturally. Right? When, when opportunities to love others this way comes along, your sinful heart is going to be right there, ready to encourage you to do the opposite. So don't be surprised by that. Just hearing a sermon on the need to love at all times in everything that you do isn't going to change everything. You still have to work hard at this. You have to choose to love others in spite of what your heart is telling you you should do. Now stop right now. Take a moment. Look. Hear what I'm saying. Do you know a way right now, is God putting something on your mind, a way to prefer someone else over yourself? Do you know someone more loyal to you than you are to them? Do you know someone that you are tempted to callously 
ignore, that you could instead gently and patiently tolerate? Is there someone that you typically treat rudely that you could be kind to instead? Is there someone that you know who needs some tenderness shown to them? Is there someone you need to stop withholding love from and instead forgive them? See, if yes, if that person is in your mind right now, do you also feel resistance to denying yourself and loving them in these ways? Resist that. Resist the resistance. Friends, this is how Christ treated you to the glory of the Father. Let that same motivation to glorify your Heavenly Father motivate you. Another way that your love for others brings glory to God is that it results in unity. God glorifying unity. See, when Paul was talking to the Romans about their use of their freedoms, he prayed for them. He said in in Romans 15, verse 5, he says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he tells the Colossians this, in Colossians 3.14, he says, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond, glue of unity. Have you ever said or done hurtful or mean things to a brother or sister in Christ simply out of pride or selfishness? I have. Who are you exalting when you do that? You're you're exalting self, not God. You know, of all people, we Christians... We know that we have absolutely no basis for pride or for selfishness. See, if you're not just a Christian in name only, you know what you were. You were helpless. You were ungodly. There was nothing about you, nothing that motivated God to choose you or Christ to die for you. Nothing. Have you ever considered that perhaps it was even the degree of your unworthiness that led Christ to choose you and die for you? Your salvation would glorify God all the more because of His amazing grace, because you were that low. Don't let a lack of love create a disunity amongst the very people in whom Christ's grace and love should abound. Here's another way. Your love for others can glorify God because it reveals Christ's love to others. It reveals Christ's love to others. Jesus said in John 13, He said, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, your love for another believer, it's a display of the love of Christ in you. John says in 1 John 4.12, he says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. See, no one can see God, right? But 
by our loving of one another with this kind of way that we're talking about? We make his love visible. We make it tangible. They can see it. They can evaluate it. And understanding it this way, it means that when you witness to unbelievers by your love, you witness to them by by your love. You're telling them about Christ by what you're doing in love for others. You know, in the second century, Christianity began to spread throughout the Roman Empire, particularly particularly to some of the great cities, Rome, Carthage, and North Africa. And at that time, Christians, they came under suspicion having given up the, the behavior of their, of their formerly pagan lifestyle and wild rumors that they began to spring up. And what did Christians teach? What, what happened in their meetings together? Well, one thing that was loud and clear were the words that were recorded by Tertullian. He was a church leader at that time. He said that many of the attacks against Christians were made out of jealousy. Why did he say this? It was because the Christians of that day, they displayed an aspect of character that their non-Christian neighbors simply did not have. This is what Tertullian said. He said, quote, It is mainly the deeds of a love, so, a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See how they love one another. How they are ready even to die for one another. See, this is what our love for one another is supposed to do. It's supposed to give a clear picture of what Christ's love is like. But not only is Christ's love revealed through you, but lastly, Christ's love, this is the fourth way, Christ's love is often revealed in you. When you love one another, Christ's love is revealed in you, and this glorifies the Father. Again, John, in 1 John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, we could sing it all as kids. Beloved, let us love one another. Right? Love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God. God is love. See, the question that we must ask ourselves is when the world looks at our church, do they see a love that can only be explained by the supernatural work of God? That kind of love exists or this verse wouldn't make sense. And is it present in our church? John tells us why we should pursue and practice this kind of love. This is why you should do this. This is why this should be important to you. Because it assures you that you are born of God. Jesus himself said, that's the love that's going to cause many in the world to see and give glory to our Father in heaven. Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do you long for a love like that? I do. I long for it in myself. I long for it in our church. Can you imagine experiencing Experiencing the love of God so deeply in your life that it just spills over into your relationships with other people? Love is an essential part of God's very nature. It, has, it always has been. It always will be. Jesus prayed to His Father this way. In John 17, He said, I have made Your name known to them 
and will make it known so that the love which you have loved me, right, this is between the Father and the Son, it may be in them and I in them. See, this, this, if you have heard what he's just said, you should be stuffing your brain back into head, your head. It just, it just exploded with what he said here. Jesus is describing the love that God has that has been existing for all eternity between himself and the Son and the Spirit in the triunity of God. And when you come to know God personally, Jesus says, you are drawn into this very fellowship. This is astounding if you think about it. But this is what Jesus prays for us. That the Father's love for the Son might be in us. And so the evidence of being indwelt by the Spirit of God is that you love Jesus with the very same love that the Father has for Him. And as much as the Father loved the Son, what did He do? He still sent Him into the world so that He might save us by His death. 1 John 4.9 says, By this the love of God was manifested in us that God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. See, as an expression of the Father's love for us, the Son whom He loved died to bring life to those who were His enemies. This is the love that John says that we are brought into when God saves us. A love for each other that is willing to suffer for others. This kind of That kind of sacrificial love is a supernatural love. And you only have it because the Father's love and Christ's life is in you by the Spirit of God. So this is the love by which we are to do all things. A love that is motivated by God's glory because it resembles Christ. It results in unity. It reveals Christ's love to others and Christ's life in you. But I want you to see one more thing, though, about this love I want you to see love's effect. The effect of doing everything in love is everyone is built up. Love's effect is the building up of others. Jump to chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This is what he says right at the beginning. Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that all have knowledge... Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Okay, so if you recall in this chapter when we were there, there was an issue in the church about food sacrificed to idols. Namely, is it okay for Christians to eat it? And some felt it was fine because idols are nothing. Others, though, did not feel that they were free to eat it. They related it to being sinful in some way. And Paul brings this up because many had the knowledge that idols were nothing. And therefore, eating food sacrificed to an idol is nothing. Nothing to worry about. But this knowledge was causing some, in their arrogance, to not care that it was hurting those who didn't think the same way about idols and couldn't understand why Christians could eat food that was sacrificed to an idol. And Paul is saying here, he's saying your knowledge has made you arrogant. 
and uncaring towards others. This is not what love does. Love builds others up. To not care when the faith of another person is stumbled or even ruined, that is not love. That is not what love does. But I want you to work. look at verse 3. Work back from verse 3. Paul is saying that the one, he says, the one who is known by God, and the idea there would be chosen by God, the one who is known by God loves God. And as a result, he knows as he ought to know. His knowledge, it doesn't produce arrogance. It produces humility. And God's love in him, it leads him to love others and always to seek to build them up in their walk with God. That's what love does. Love always builds others up. And so, like we did in the first one, if now we combine what Paul says here, love edifies with 1 Corinthians 16.14, let all that you do be done in love. What we see is that when we do everything in love, it will always build others up. When we do everything in love, it will always build others up. Isn't that encouraging? Do everything in love so that others are always built up. It is from Paul's letters that we learn, you know, what is edification? Edification, it's more than just encouragement. It's, it's that which produces Christ-likeness in us. So it's not like, I was so encouraged by your love. I, was, I saw Christ in your love. And I want to be like that. I want to be like the Christ whom you're showing me right now by your love. So we can be edified individually, right, by our practice, let's say, of our spiritual disciplines in our own time when we're, when we're taking in the scriptures, when we're in prayer or biblical medica- medita- medication, meditation, things like that. Right? In most cases, though, edification has a corporate idea to it. We must mutually edify each other through teaching, preaching, exhorting, accountability, and serving. And I think a great place where we kind of see this referred to is Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together, right? Because what happens when you assemble with other believers? When the church assembles, why should you be there? Because that's where you get encouraged, strengthened, edified. See, this is the biblical picture of the effect of love in a church. Mutually spurring one another on to love Christ, to love others, to do truly beneficial things for others. And when this kind of love is absent, you know what happens? The saints are not building each other up in Christ, and you end up with what was being experienced in the Corinthian church. Division, discouragement, unkindness, arrogance, and spiritual immaturity how sad how dishonoring to christ and the only way a church like this can glorify god is by repenting repent of the lack of love for god and for each other now as we come to a close here what are some of the ways doing all things in love will build others up let me name just briefly just a few First, your love for others, it will will protect the worship of the church. That's what will happen. 
this is chapter 14, right? Paul spent the first 25 verses in chapter 14 showing the importance of God's word in the church. Because that's how the saints are built up, through the word of God. And then in verse 26, he lays down some regulations for what the church is to do when it gathers. Which he sums up this way in verse 26 of chapter 14. Let all things be done, and he means in the church service, for edification. So the reason that the Spirit has given spiritual gifts to us is not so that we can build ourselves up, but that we can build each other up in Christ. And Paul lays out for the church then how to regulate their services to protect the worship services to ensure that through those services the saints are built up. Another reason doing all things in love builds others up is because your love for others prioritizes the welfare of others. And this, again, that that would take us back to Philippians chapter 2. You don't need to turn there. We have the mindset of Christ here. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. So if I'm prioritizing your spiritual welfare, my desire is to see you become more like Christ. So that means I'm going to seek to admonish and encourage and comfort and challenge, even rebuke you in love with the Word, right? Biblical counseling started this morning in CBI. Maybe you need to be a part of that so you can love others this way. And I will do that for you. Will you do that for me? Lastly, it's your love for others that provides the essential element in serving He says, this takes us to the quintessential chapter. We end on this. 1 Corinthians 13. Maybe you want to watch or follow along with me. First Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, what have I become? It's a noisy gong, clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith, even so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, what am I? Nothing. You're nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, what does it profit me? Nothing. Waste. Waste. See, when you exercise your spiritual gift, without deliberate, self-giving, unconditional love, you undo the very reason that God gave you this gift. Love is that essential. How deceived that we can be to think that what we do matters more than why we do it. Christ does not need us to accomplish His purposes in His church. He invites us to join Him so that in loving and serving others that we have the opportunity to become more like Him. As Paul says, He loved me. He gave Himself for me. And the same love of Christ, Paul says, it has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So, just by way of conclusion, let's put all this together just in one final Statement, all right? This is our little spoon. We're going to pour the medicine of God in this spoon and we're going to take it all down in one dose because this is difficult. It's beautiful, but it's difficult. Your desire to bring glory to God is what motivates you to love others with a love that resembles Christ and results in unity. 
It also reveals Christ's love to others and Christ's life in you. And when you love others this way, it will always build them up because it protects the worship of the church. It prioritizes their welfare over yours and it ensures that you use your spiritual gift in a way that will truly bless them. This is what Paul has in view here as he's admonishing them and us to do everything in love. And that is also, dear friends, how you remain faithful to Christ. Let's pray. Our God, who is love, who first loved us when we were helpless and when we were hopeless and when we were far from you and didn't want anything to do with you. Oh, God of love, would you help us to love like Christ? We can't do this on our own. This is a supernatural love. It is born of your spirit, and it is there. If we are truly yours and of you, this love has already been deposited in our hearts, but we can resist it if we let our sinful nature have its way. Help us to submit ourselves to you so that you might be glorified and others might be built up. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.